So we've titled our series, The B-I-B-L-E, uh, Is That the Book for Me? Which sounds very similar, I would think, to a song you, you uh, learned growing up. Let's, let's try it. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Yeah, you guys are great. Man, take you on tour. Oasis Choir. So the, the subtitle to our series, Is That the Book for Me? Uh, as uh, Hannah said, question mark, um, is not intended to suggest that it's not, but it's intended to kind of uh, let us kind of question ourselves and what is it that we think we're reading and how do we use it? So the short answer to the question, is that the book for me, is yes, but maybe not as we've always often thought or as we've always used it. Phil kind of referenced this as well, that sometimes we've um, used Scripture as a stick to kind of measure people. And in worst-case scenarios, we've used this as a stick and we've hit people across the back with it. And I don't think that's its purpose. That's an understatement. That's not its purpose. So many of you might know that I have a day job uh, in addition uh, to working here at the church. I'm a college professor, and my specialty is in biblical studies. So this is kind of what I do for a living. Uh, after you know, going through elementary school and, and middle school and high school, I spent the next 14 years of my life uh, studying Scripture. I did a bachelor's degree, a master of divinity, a Ph.D., and at the end of that 14 years, I was tired. <laughs> but uh, I got a job uh, teaching uh, in college, and I've taught at a couple different seminaries, and I've taught at a couple different universities. Sometimes I use my summer to travel and teach. I've taught in Puerto Rico. Any Puerto Ricans in the group? Woohoo! We'll say a prayer for Puerto Rico in a minute. Uh, uh, I've taught in Israel. Uh, I've taught in England. Uh, I've taught in uh, Italy and Greece and Turkey and Kenya. Uh, I've also taught in church. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do right now. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that I have all the answers, um, but, but I am wanting you to know that I, I'm coming to you today not just as your pastor, but, but as someone who really does love the Scriptures. Um, because some of the stuff I'm going to say today might be a little challenging, and you need to kind of remember whom you're hearing it from. Uh, Paul says this to Timothy. We often quote 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired. You know that one? But we, we, we leave off the verse before that where Paul says to Timothy, I want you to remember what you have learned and from whom you have learned it. And amongst those people, that would be Paul and Eunice and Lois. That's his mom and grandmom who are mentioned in the letter. We often leave them out, always leaving out the moms and the grandmoms, but they're part of it. I have a story to share with you. It's really brief. And it's probably apocryphal, but we'll go with it because it's meaningful. <clears throat> uh, 50, 60 years ago, uh, <clears throat> Albert Einstein had left uh, Germany, and he was living in the United States, and he was working at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. This is before he became quite the rock star that we all know him to be today. We all say Einstein, and you, know, you just kind of think genius. So this is when Einstein had yet kind of made that huge popularity, and he was making his way across the Princeton University campus, <clears throat> and he bumps into another student, or to a student, and the student, you know, they make their introductions, hey, I'm Albert, and the student kind of says his name. <clears throat> the student says, what do you do? And Einstein says, well, I'm a student of physics. 
And the student said, oh, I took physics last term. So <clears throat> we don't want to be that kid, right? We don't want to be the kid who says to Albert Einstein, I took physics last term. Uh, when we're coming to the scriptures, it's not like, well, I've already read that, or I already know what that means. Um, we, we just don't want to kind of be in, in, that, in that category. There's, there's a term that we use for second-year students in college. You know this term? Sophomore, yes. It comes from a couple of other words. It comes from Sophia, that means wisdom, and moron, <laughs> which means fool. So the sophomore, don't take offense if you're a sophomore, it's, but the term sophomore means wise fool. It means we've, we've read a little bit, we've made it through our first year, and now we think we know it. So, <clears throat> I'm a student of Scripture. I pray that you're a student of Scripture. We find it useful in living the Christian life. And so that's what we're here to do. So, in this series, the B-I-B-L-E, is that the book for me, we're going to uh, answer or address a few questions. What is it? That's today. What it's not? That's next week. Um, how to interpret it? Uh, maybe a couple of Sundays on how, how to use it. So I found this, in terms of what it is, I found this video very helpful. I thought that was a really good description as to, as to what it is and where it came from. It is a library. It was written over a thousand years. It had uh, a, ton, a ton of people kind of contributing to it. Uh, they were writing to particular people at a particular place at a particular time. Some of it was written kind of to the Hebrews. Uh, part of it was written kind of addressed to other people. Um, Jonah seems to be addressed to the Ninevites, uh, his word of the Lord that he delivers. Some of it comes from Hebrews. Some of it comes from other places. Uh, the words of Agor in Proverbs, the words of King Lemuel. These aren't, these aren't Hebrew kings, but yet they're finding their way into, into the uh, scriptures of the Jewish people. Uh, some of it is the word of the Lord as it comes to the people, you know, and the word of the Lord came to the prophet, and the prophet said. And other of it is the words of the people directed back to God. Oh, God, what are you doing? Certain songs and certain prayers are directed more towards God than they are towards people. Those prayers that say, oh, God, where are you? I wish you were here now. You've read those psalms? You know, that's not like God talking to us. Oh, God, where are you? I wish you were here right now. That'd be a bizarre way to read that text, right? It's, it's, the, it's full of all these different sorts of things. It has creation stories. It has law codes. It has poetry. It has songs. It has creeds. It has uh, parables. It has history. It has letters. Uh, it has uh, visions. Uh, it has apocalypses, which is a really interesting genre unto itself. So it really is like a library. It's a collection of all sorts of things. And as a library often does, uh, it has uh, lots of different genres. And those, those genres, those kind of you know, types of literature. So to, to speak of this, um, we know there's different kind of genres of music. Like, do you have your favorite genre of music? Yes? What's name one? Somebody says rock. Somebody said jazz. Country and western. I appreciate that, brother. All right. Some bluegrass. Some hip hop. Some rap. Right. All of these are different types of music. We have different types of literature. 
And those different types of literature have to be read different ways. We'll focus on this uh, in a couple of weeks. But in those different types of literature are also various figures of speech, uh, a metaphor, a simile, an allegory. I know you didn't think you were coming to an English class, but look, if we say we believe certain things about Scripture and then we don't take seriously what's there, then, then what are we really saying about it? Like if, <clears throat> if somebody uses a hyperbole, it's good to know that's a hyperbole, right? I'm starving to death. Well, you don't need to run to me and you know, hook me up to an IV and try to make sure I'm not going to go into some kind of diabetic coma. It just means, hey, can we wrap this up and get to the restaurant? It's a hyperbole. Jesus says, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Look, how many of you have ever used your right hand in sinning? Come on. <laughs> All right, I see a lot of right hands out there. <clears throat> yeah, we have, we have to understand what's being said. We do this in normal life, but sometimes it's as though we forget how we normally understand, as though, and this is the kicker, it's as though the Bible actually doesn't have to do with my real life. It's just my spiritual life. It's just something I can think about or reflect on. But I need it, I need it right here. I need it to affect the way I, not just the way I think, but the way I live, the way I act. And so we have to take this into account. Now, I have a couple of, of provisos, and this first one is a big one. It's important. Uh, as important as the Bible is, it's important for us to realize it's not a substitute for God. It comes from God. It's inspired by God. It's a great resource to tell us about God. But it is not a substitute for God. Jack Deere, an Old Testament professor, was teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary for years. And uh, Dallas was a kind of an ultra-conservative. I don't think it's um, too much to say that. Um, graduate school for ministry in, in Dallas, Texas. Um, you know, you all know that I grew up Appalachian Pentecostal. At Dallas, if, they, if you spoke in tongues, they kicked you out, right? I mean, they didn't, they didn't like people like me. So um, Jack um, said all that, you know, all healing, uh, exorcism, uh, spirituality like that, that's all for the old days. That's not for nowadays, and he believed it, and he taught it. And his church was, <clears throat> had an altar call. Altar call, I know you might not know that if you come to Oasis, but it's when people come forward and they pray up here in the front. Yeah? And he's praying for this lady, and a demon is exercised. Now, you say what you want to say about this. This is not, how, this is not what Jack was expecting. So he goes and he prays and he studies and he prays and he studies. In the midst of all that, he talks in tongues. So he goes to his dean and his president and said, hey, guess what happened to me? And they said, Jack, it's been nice to you working here. <laughs> and he gets a pink slip. He's fired. And then he writes this book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> <clears throat> if, this is it, right? We don't just think that God... Once upon a time, spoke in Scripture, we think God speaks to us, that, that God moves us. Whether it's in dreams or visions or, or the, the still small voice or what you remember your mom and dad saying to you or perhaps what even a pastor says 
in the midst of a sermon, that God speaks to us. And we can be surprised that we don't know it all. And in Jack's book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, he writes this. This is a telling testimony. He says, in the process of getting theologically trained and becoming a seminary professor, I developed an intense passion for studying God's Word. I found myself loving the Bible more than I love the author of the Bible. I was caught in this trap for more years than I would like to remember. It took me too long to learn that knowing the Bible is not the same thing as knowing God. Loving the Bible is not the same thing as loving God. And reading the Bible is not the same thing as hearing God. That's a testimony. And it's a testimony that he came to not because he was trying to run away from God, not because he was trying to do the wrong thing. He had spent his whole life studying these texts and yet found himself in that position. So that's one of the things that I want us to avoid. I want us to kind of learn from Jack's testimony. So to be clear, when we use the phrase Word of God to refer to the Bible, we also sometimes use the phrase Word of God to refer to Jesus. And that's a little dangerous. It's dangerous because it may give the impression that the Bible and Jesus are on equal footing. In the Gospel of John, it opens with this poem. And it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being <clears throat> excuse me, through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. If we read a little further down, fast forward, it says, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of as of Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the Word that was from the beginning, that was with God and is God, and through Him all things were made and created, is Jesus. Not the Bible. It doesn't say in the beginning there was the Word and the Word was God and the Word got written down so we could argue about it, right? So um, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, this got Andy Stanley, a pastor from Atlanta, into trouble uh, about a year or so ago when he said that the, that the actual gospel, is, the actual good news is Jesus. <laughs> like Jesus is the good news. And then that the, the, the New Testament, the Bible, is kind of this story about the good news. Right? It tells us about that. Ooh, that's, okay, he kind of runs in Baptist circles. I don't have to worry about that so much, but apparently he does. Right? Another very important thinker of the 20th century, uh, a pastor from Germany who also was a theologian, wrote a lot, named, a guy named Karl Barth, when he used the term scriptures, he was actually referring to what we call the Old Testament. And when he wanted to refer to what we call the New Testament, he called it the apostolic witness, which I thought was interesting. I think he was trying to kind of keep in step with the writers of the New Testament. That is, when the writers of the New Testament, if you said, hey, scriptures, the writings, they would have thought the, the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the Nabim, the Kethibim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's what they would have thought scripture was because that kind of pointed toward Jesus. And then there's Jesus, 
And then there's the apostolic witness that kind of points back to Jesus. So, just in case you're missing it, the most important thing here is Jesus. Right. God still speaks to us. And if you have ears to hear, you can hear. And perhaps you will hear while you're reading Scripture. Or perhaps you'll hear while you're praying. Perhaps you'll hear while you're sleeping. Perhaps you'll hear from your mom, your dad, from your significant other, from a sermon, from a song, from a still small voice. So the B-I-B-L-E, is that the book for me? Yes. But more importantly, is this God who's revealed from that book the God for me? And that's a definite yes. You see, when Jesus was living on earth, he didn't give us a book. He gave us a table. Interestingly, Jesus didn't write anything. I mean, there's that one time he wrote, he says, when they were going to stone that one lady, and he got down and wrote in the dirt. But I don't think he, like, wrote out a whole book in the dirt. So I'm not sure what he wrote in the dirt, because it doesn't say, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't like a dissertation. But what he did give us was the table. He gave us a practice of coming together and accepting one another and loving one another and forgiving one another because our God has called us and accepted us and loved us and forgiven us, giving us that example. So the Bible, I'll say this. So the first thing is we don't want to substitute God for the Bible. I think that's an important point. And I, and I think it's an important point, especially amongst conservative Christians, because really they're the only ones that, are, that could possibly be guilty of this because other people don't even take it seriously enough. <laughs> Right? So it is kind of our context, our, our type of folk, right, that might be open to that, that challenge. Um, the other concern is, is this, is that while it's true that it was written over a thousand years, and it's true that it had other editors and at different times and different genres and different people and different audiences, and it's all this diverse discussions that are kind of here, there, and everywhere, it's also true that the Holy Bible, which is kind of the name of the book, is something more than just the Bible for us. It's our scriptures. It's our sacred text. And it does tell a unifying story. Uh, a unifying story, a, a scarlet thread, right? There is, well, with, amongst all of that diversity, there is this unity, and it's that unity that carries perhaps this kind of most important kind of vital thing to know. So uh, a couple of, uh, of biblical scholars have kind of cast the whole of Scripture in a metaphor of a six-act play. And so briefly, I'm just going to walk us through that to kind of give us this kind of uh, bird's-eye view of the whole picture. So Act 1, creation. This is where the story opens. Um, the creation story, or we probably should say creation stories because it's kind of told and retold. Um, in the first one, there's a bunch of days and things happen on particular days and it wraps up in chapter one. And then there's a second one and it's not referenced to any days, but it's the kind of the retelling of, of the story. The stories don't really mesh great together. Um, kind of humans got created at the end of the first story and in the second story, they're at the kind of at the beginning, and then other things get created and brought to them. You think somebody might have edited that out. But anyway, the creation story <clears throat> tells us who this, who's doing all this. Now, sometimes we can, 
we ask questions and our questions are just kind of misguided. So before uh, the service today, I, I mulled around a bit in the cafe and I asked some people this question and I'm going to ask you to ask the people next to you. Uh, the question is, how far is it to Orlando? So ask somebody next to you. All right, so some people want some clarification, like how far to Orlando from where? From here at the church, from my house, yeah? So just curious, um, by show of hands, when you ask the person next to you, how far is, is it to Orlando, how many answered in time? Like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes, okay? How many of you answered in distance? 45 miles, 50 miles, yeah? So that's interesting, right? How far is it to Orlando can be answered in time, how long it takes to get there. It can be answered uh, in distance, like, like literally what's the, what's the distance from here to there. Now, I've got another question for you. Uh, what color is it to Orlando? What color is it? Anybody know? Purple, fuchsia, hot pink. Let me ask you this. Okay, that's, that was a confusing question. I mean, I'll give you something, something simpler. How much does it weigh to Orlando? That's ridiculous. Those are crazy questions. The distance from here to Orlando can't be answered in color. There's not a color. It can't be answered in weight. Like, weight matters sometimes. You know, you step on the scale in the morning, go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have breakfast. <laughs> right? Color, color matters, you know, you want to match, generally. <laughs> yeah. So people come to this creation story, and instead of asking the question, who and why and what difference does this make, they ask the question, when, they ask questions like when and how. And that it, gets, it gets the church into all sorts of problems. Trying to make Genesis 1 and 2 answer the questions of, of when and how, it's like trying to get somebody to answer the question, what's the color to Orlando? It's, it's the wrong question for that type of literature. It starts off with, and we could study it in more detail in a different context, but it, it starts off with a poem. And poetry should be read a particular way. You know, if God wanted to give us a biology textbook, or a cosmology textbook. I guess God could have done that. But if you think that the Bible is only true, it's only trustworthy, if it can answer cosmological questions, then, then I think we might be off base. It might be answering much more important questions about who did this and what's going on and what does God have to say about it. Well, this is it. God's the creator, right? People in the ancient times would worship the earth sometimes, like the sun and the moon. They don't even get created until day four. Interesting enough, light was already created on day one. Where does light come from? The sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, how did it get here before then? Well, it just comes from God. God's the source of these things. And what does God have to say about it? He says it's good. So why are we saying it's bad? I hear stories all the time. I hear them from my students. How bad the world is. Really? Because God said it was good. 
It's, it's, all, it's all getting destroyed. Really? Because I think God's planning on fixing it. Like These, these are big stories, and, and they do matter. Act 2, the fall. Right? We talked about this a few weeks ago, too. The fall is a story of, of humans kind of coming to some kind of self-awareness and their capacity to kind of choose to do wrong and the consequences that then God kind of gives to humans as a result of that. And so how we understand all that, I think, I think is pretty important. I don't think it caught uh, God off guard. Like, oh, man, there they went and ate from that tree. I told them not to. Shucks. I don't even read those stories like that at all. But, but this, is, this is one thing that I think we should get is we find ourselves in a situation that's not ideal, but God has not left us in it, right? God is, God is with us. And that opens us up kind of immediately then to Act 3, which is Israel. We're only, we're only in like Genesis chapter 4 at this point, so those first two acts are pretty short. So the story kind of unfolds, right? There's a story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the conquest, the people of Israel having a place. The story of Israel is kind of the first part of God's response uh, to um, our situation, right? That, that God responds to the fall with the story of Israel. And as they said in the video, that it's not just a story of those people at that time, although it is a story of those people at that time. It's not just that. It's a story of how God is working kind of in history through people to come about and kind of make things right. And as they said, while the story did kind of predict a Messiah, it comes to an end without the Messiah, the Deliverer, coming. Which brings us to the intermission. It's a, th- it's a six act play. We're three acts in. We got three acts to go. We've gone through Genesis 1 through Malachi 3, but then we hit this kind of, I don't know, intermediate time. And it's, this is a really interesting time. Uh, it's a time back in the day when you went to the, the play or the movies. You'd have intermission, and you could get up and go to the bathroom, get a cup of coffee, and say, hey, the first, the first part was pretty good, um, and then come back. Don't anybody get up and leave, by the way. This is not the intermission of the service. But I am going to ask servers to come and uh, deliver to you the elements of communion, because we are going to eat during this intermission. Um, this was In the video, they talked about other Jewish writings that were written in the Second Temple period, some in Hebrew, some in Greek. Uh, you've heard of them, I imagine. Uh, at least somewhat, if you watch like A&E or the History Channel, the Lost Books of the Bible, right? The Dead Sea Scrolls, Maccabees, Judith, Susanna, um, Bell and the Dragon, that's one of my favorites. It's when uh, Daniel kills a dragon. Got to read that one. But what's interesting about this time period is it's not as though because scriptures weren't being produced, God had stopped talking. And I think that's an important point. God was still talking, and they were still learning. And there's all sorts of things that Christians believe, that Jews believed before them, that aren't in the Old Testament. Like this little thing about resurrection of the body. 
That's like an important part of the Christian story. You don't really find that in the Old Testament. But you do find it in the Jewish intertestamental literature. They start to believe in that. And by the time Jesus hits the scene, you get those who do believe it, right? The Pharisees and those who don't, the Sadducees. But that's, that's no small thing. Something else that they started to believe in this intertestamental time is that the Messiah that was expected would be divine. So like in the, in the Old Testament, there's messianic expectation, but, but people aren't talking about him as though he's divine. They just talk about as though he's divinely appointed king. But that gets expanded. And certainly by the time we get to Jesus, that's, that's what we're believing. <clears throat> and for all of you uh, pagans out there, also known as Gentiles, that would be me too, Another very important point that really got fleshed out during the intertestamental period was the inclusion of the Gentiles. Like, Gentiles are welcome into this party. That, that was a big part of what happened during the intertestamental period. That didn't just happen in Acts 10 and, you know, Acts 15 and with the Apostle Paul. There were already Jews kind of practicing this. They had a name for them. They're called God-fearers. And in the, in the stadiums in Turkey... You, you, people had to sit by their kind of people group, right? You kind of group together. And so the Jews sat in one spot, and the spot right next to them were the God-fearers that were like Gentiles who kind of followed the Jewish God. They had the same seats at like the sporting events. I kind of love that. That was, that was pretty cool. I saw that last summer at Miletus. So all of this is kind of taking place during this time, and it's during this time... That, that messianic expectation kind of comes to a peak and God responds with the birth of Jesus. So we, we haven't quite gotten to the Gospels yet, right? Because the Gospels will be telling us the story about the birth of Jesus. But the birth of Jesus comes and we have on earth for the first time God in the flesh. We have this this man, this prophet, this rabbi, who comes and says, I, I, I think I'm the next chapter in this story. In fact, I believe I might be the climax of the story. This, this, this is what God, the, the one God, who created everything and chose Abraham and the nation of Israel, was, was doing. He was setting all this up so that I could be here and I could tell you that the kingdom of God is coming and this is what it looks like. Uh, you're forgiven. The, the things that are wrong are going to be made right. Um, our God is a God of justice, since therefore he's making things right. But he's a God of mercy, which is great for us because we're part of what was wrong. And what was wrong, not just out there, but in here, can be fixed when we come to this table and we receive the forgiveness that's being offered. You see, this, this whole story, and we'll, we'll get to this more in a minute, this whole story is not just a story about others, it's a story that envelops us as well. But for the moment, let's just pause and thank God that this story is the story that's told that it does come to its climax in Jesus, that he, 
On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it, and he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. Take and eat. Let's take and eat together. And as was their custom after the meal, he took the cup and held it up and said, this is my blood. It's the cup of the new covenant. Take and drink. Let's take and drink together. God in heaven, we love you. We pray that you bless these elements that we've taken. May it nourish our bodies. May it nourish our souls. May we behold what we are. May we become what we receive. To be ever transformed into the image of your Son and our Savior, in whose name we pray, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Amen. Intermission's over. We're back in our seats. The curtain's open. It's Act 4. Jesus is on the scene. The Gospels tell us this story. It's not exactly what they expected. It's not like they all rallied around him and said, Woo, he's our guy. I mean, they did it a couple of times, like when he fed everybody, <laughs> right? Very interesting that the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few stories told in all four Gospels. But, you know, we like to eat. So Act 4 is Jesus, and, and this, this, is the, this is the big um, turn in the story, right? Everything that had kind of come up before that, there's the creation, there's his fall, there's Israel, and now there's Jesus. All of this fulfillment in, in the person, in the life, in the work of Jesus of Nazareth. All this kind of fulfilled expectation, and even transformed expectation. Like Jesus comes, and I would like to say this, Jesus came to live. Like, that's why Jesus came. We killed him, but God wouldn't let that be the end of the story. God's like, nope, that's not how this is going to end. And God resurrects him. You know that, that verse from, from Romans that God can work all things for the good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose? Even if you kill the Messiah, God can take that and work it for the good. <laughs> you know, he can take that event and say, okay. This is my response. A resurrection, you're forgiven. That's good, that's good news. Yeah. So, Act 5, the church. So this is the kicker now. Act 5, I think, has two very distinct scenes. Act 5, scene 1, is the story of the church that we find in the Bible. It's the book of Acts. It's the letters of Paul. It's the letters of everybody else. Uh, Hebrews, James, uh, Peter, John, Jude, Right? Um, that's that's uh, Act 5, Scene 1, the church. We might even have titled uh, Scene 1, the early church. But I'm convinced that there is an Act 5, Scene 2, and that's the part of the story we find ourselves in. Listen, we are the church. Not in its totality, of course, but we are part of the church. We are the people of God. We love God. God loves us. We're part of this story. This isn't just a story that has happened that now we try and read and reference every now and then. This is the story of us. That this is us is not just the story of Oasis. It's the story of the church. And we are part of that church. And, and now we're called upon to kind of live and to, I might even say, improvise, Right? in ways in which the, the, the scriptures have, have guided us. 
So the, the scriptures are not just a, a script that can be kind of memorized and repeated, but, but they are a, um, a story that has kind of shaped us into the type of people that when we find ourselves in our contemporary world, we, we can behave like the people of God. This, we are a part of this story. It is an ongoing kind of living story. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. There is Act 6, uh, the new creation. And while Scripture doesn't talk a lot about this, it, it does talk a little bit about it. Uh, Isaiah 65 and 66 kind of gets at this some. Uh, certainly Revelation chapter 21 and 22 uh, gets at it a lot. That's maybe the, the heart of that story. But the new creation is where we're headed. Now, this might come as an interesting point. The end of the Bible is not an ascension story where we go up, up, and away over the rainbow to the wild blue yonder, to a galaxy far, far away where no one has traveled before. Working out my metaphors there. Um, The last story is a descension story. It's, it's, the, it's the city of God. It's the kingdom of God coming down to earth. It's, it's the coming of God that makes things right. Like there's, there's too much, particularly of the theology that I grew up with, that makes it sound like we're leaving earth behind and moving on to some better place as opposed to God coming here and making things right. But I'm pretty confident on this one. The new Jerusalem comes down and the new heaven and new earth are established and there are no more tears and, and God is all in all. You get that at the uh, 1 Corinthians 15 after Paul talks about the resurrection, it ends with that phrase and you get it again in Revelation 21 and 22 that God is coming. That actually is the good news. Here comes the kingdom and it's going to change things. It's going to make the wrong things right. And good news for you is you get made right. Additional good news for you, you get to participate in the making of things right. So that when you forgive, you're behaving like your father who's a forgiver. When you show mercy, you're behaving like your father who shows mercy. When you, when you love something or someone, you're behaving like your father who loves. Right? This, this is where we're headed. When we do those other things, you know, the opposite of mercy and the injustice and uh, exclusion and non-forgiveness, I mean, all of those things are kind of contrary to the way that things are moving. And I, I know we can look around the world and, and see all sorts of problems. And, and Scripture has comment on that as well. And, and we'll, we'll get to some of those in the weeks to come. But we say at Oasis... Uh, that in the essentials unity, in the non-essentials diversity, in all things charity. And we've decided to uh, open and close each of these services on the B-I-B-L-E with a reading of Scripture. We, we read from Psalm 25 for our call to worship, and uh, Carol's coming now to, to read from Philippians 2 um, as we close. This, my friends, 
when we say in the essentials unity, this is what we're talking about when we say the essentials. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father.